Hello and welcome to a new episode of Polar Times. This is actually not the introduction to this episode, but this is the introduction to the introduction. Because the episode that you are listening to has been recorded in February 2022. We have been a bit slow to make it ready to be heard by you. Um, we're sorry about this. And we wanted to just let you know that in the meantime, the author, Anne Nielsen, has published a new book about her research called Brand Antarctica, How Global Consumer Culture Shapes Our Perceptions of the Ice Continent. I think this is a fascinating subject, uh, but I will let Jack and Hanne explain you all this in the following. Uh, have a good listening. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our little podcast. You're here with me again, Jack. And today, we always say at the beginning that we are bringing you science and stories from polar places. And today, we really are doing stories. Uh, we're talking all about how Antarctica is represented in the media and in popular culture. And we're looking at how it, that representation has changed over time. How was it featured in the media, say, at the beginning of the 20th century compared to now? And uh, why has that changed? And how is our, you know, our value and I suppose our imagined reality of Antarctica shifted, been reframed over time. How has it changed? Why has it changed? How do you even go about studying a question or a topic like that? We have a lovely um, um, person. Our guest today is a like a humanities person, and that's basically their research. So they fill us in on all the tea and all the goss on how you go about answering such a question. I had a lovely time chatting to them, I always do, and I hope that you enjoy today's episode. All right, everyone, please welcome to the stage today my lovely guest, Hannah Nielsen. Hi, Hannah, how's it going? Hi, yeah, good, thanks. Here in lovely Hobart. Ah, um, it's obviously summer down there and I'm super jealous because it's uh, <laughs> it's horrible and gross in the UK. Welcome to Polar Times. It's lovely to have you. Thank you. All right, this is the this is the first um, start of the podcast and we call it the icebreaker. It's the introduction where we get to know you. So as ever, my first question is, who are you and how did you come to Polar Life? Well, as you've uh, mentioned there, my name is Hannah Nielsen. Uh, I'm a New Zealander currently living in Tasmania, uh, uh where I'm a lecturer in Antarctic law and governance. Uh, how I came here is sort of by accident, and it's actually to do with my appendix, uh, which might sound strange. Uh, but my background was in German literature, and when I was traveling in 2010 and got appendicitis, the one good thing I could think of at that point was at least now I can go to Antarctica. So a holiday was ruined, but the one good thing I could cling to was that southern continent. And the reason for that was somewhere in the back of my mind was that story about the Russian doctor who'd cut out his own appendix. I don't know why it was lying there dormant, but that just <laughs> that was just the spark. And from there, it was how do I get to Antarctica? 
And then after my, my first trip down with the University of Canterbury, it was how do I keep working in and about this place? So a bit of a, a roundabout way, uh, but these days I work on Antarctica every day and it's uh, absolutely fantastic. Oh, great, yeah. So you don't have to have a, your appendix out to go down to Antarctica, do you? <laughs> well, as it turns not... out, no, you don't. Um, <laughs> there was some National Antarctic Programs where that was the case for wintering over uh, to try and avoid those complications. Um, but I, I'd heard the story with this sort of black and white photo of that surgeon and uh, that just that kind of stuck. And as it, as it happened, I actually went down in the summertime anyway the first time with the University of Canterbury. Uh, and you fly in and you fly out, and it's easier to get to the Ross Ice Shelf in many ways than to get to the Northern Hemisphere, somewhere like uh, the UK or the USA. So a little bit of a, a disconnect there, but that, that's what started things. It was a story. That is a good story, yeah. <laughs> All right, so but how did you get from um, when you were studying like literature, how, were you, what, how what, you were thinking, were you always thinking Antarctica, or was it whilst you were travelling that something was, was sparked? Yeah, no, I wasn't always thinking about Antarctica. And in fact, it was that moment of, is there a connection here uh, that made me start looking what might what might be that bridge? And uh, as it happened, there was a play that was written by a German playwright, uh, Reinhard Göring, uh, which was the first time that Robert Falcon Scott's expedition had been dramatised on the stage. And that was written in German um, in the uh, 19... 30s uh, and there was also an, an opera associated with that as well but that was uh, my bridge over into Antarctic work because I had this background in literature uh, in German literature and then this was this story being told on that stage uh, in that stage setting uh, and so I, I wrote to the University of Canterbury for their postgraduate uh, certificate course and said hey this is an area that I'd like to, to look at you should take me on your course and that course uh, included field work down in the Antarctic, the, a summer course with people from all different backgrounds. Uh, so in that case, it was a, a story that I was looking at in an academic context, a story about Antarctica in German that took me from that one area of research and, and turned the direction completely around. Um, and in fact, I, I mentioned earlier that, that stories are important. I think that they are so important and so underrated Generally, uh, when we think about Antarctica, most people don't actually go there. They don't actually visit, but they have this idea of the place in their mind. And that idea is built up through these tidbits of information that we encounter, whether that is through uh, nature documentaries, whether that's through reading diaries of heroic era explorers, whether that's through Instagram photos from someone who's gone down as a, a tourist who you know. Uh, it's all the, this kind of media that's feeding these stories and these versions of the place that we carry around. Um, but, but I think those versions of Antarctica that we imagine uh, are super important and they're super important to study as well because if you don't understand those, you don't understand why people care about a place. And if you don't understand why people care about it, it's very difficult to protect that um, as well. So for me, the story has been that thread right throughout. And in fact, I went on to write a master's thesis about how Antarctica has been represented on the stage as well uh, in terms of theatre and uh, just the ways that we can bring a far-off location back home 
and make that tangible or make some kind of a, a connection. Um, that, that's been one area that, that I'm continued to be really interested in too. Sure. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. We, yeah, we, that's part of the reason we like doing a podcast like this. Cause you know, talking about polar places that are often out of sight and out of mind, um, it's, you know, so it's important to, you know, remind people that they're there <laughs> and they should care about them. And you're totally right. There's nothing like a good story is they're like, um, you know, I tell people I went to South Georgia for my field work and they're like, oh yeah, okay, that's kind of cool. Well, and I'm like, when I say, oh, but my supervisor had to get medically evacuated and then that's a story that <laughs> people are interested in <laughs> and they want the details. So you're right. Yeah, a story can definitely hook people. You want the drama and you want something to go wrong. In fact, um, on that point, Jack, that was a really big problem for a lot of the early heroic era explorers, in fact. Um because if we think back to how those expeditions were funded, uh, they had book deals back home with publishers and there were examples, um, Roald Arwinson, for instance, actually lost his book deal because the cables that he sent home were not compelling enough. Oh, really? So since humans have been exploring Antarctica, the stories have been super important and they've been important in terms of how to fund those expeditions as well. You need that drama. Uh, You need to tell the story that, people are, are expecting to be associated with that place uh, as well. If you do things just fine and, and stay safe and uh, nothing really happens, then then that's not really going to end up on the front pages or not not sell your little monograph there. Sure, yeah. I suppose you even see it in like the documentaries. Of, even when it, you have a polar documentary, you know, the animals are a bit anthropomorphised into like, you know, drama and stuff like that. It just makes it more... Yeah, totally. More interesting, I suppose. Okay, fabulous. So that leads us on to kind of, um, and then you, you did your PhD, which was like Brand, Brand Antarctica, it was called, and then selling representations of the South from the historic era to the present. So I suppose, um, and that's kind of part of your research right now. So like how Antarctica and the Southern Ocean is represented in the media and popular culture and stuff like that and how it's changed over time all sounds super interesting so can we dive into some of that a little bit so like how is antarctica represented in the media <laughs> yeah that, that's a, a great question and so the the thing that i'm interested in again is what sorts of versions of this place are circulating back home um what stories are we telling through what lenses are we looking at the far south and, and that's changed. Uh, it changes depending on the time period that you're in. It changes depending on the, the national context as well because what we value and why we think it's important is very culturally contingent. Uh, so what I did for my PhD, I was saying, when we think of Antarctica, we often think of it as a place that's apart from the rest of the world in a place that's not commercialised, in a place that's governed by the Antarctic Treaty System and doesn't belong to any one nation and not as a place that's part of our global systems of commerce. But in fact, it very much is and has been since the first human interactions with that place. So if we're looking at the uh, Western history of Antarctica, where you have the whalers and, and sealers heading down and these early maps having deliberate errors built into them because it was valuable to know where the seals were located. So 
you'd have captains um, putting these mistakes in the logs so that the locations couldn't get stolen by other people. We've got that aspect with the whaling and the sealing. Um, we've got other aspects like the sponsorship of expeditions. So every one of those heroic era expeditions had a whole number of sponsors, whether it was a product being used in the Antarctic with photographs used back home in that endorsement side of things, uh, or whether it was a, a corporate sponsor with the, the naming of, for instance, um, airplanes on expeditions. Um, and then as we're looking at Antarctica within that commercial sphere, the question I was asking was, is it really not for sale? And in fact, looking at advertising was a really interesting way to see, actually, it's very much embroiled in these systems of commerce back home. But the, the thing that drew me to that was when Antarctica is used in an advertisement to sell a particular product, whether it's a product that's been to Antarctica or a product that just has some kind of a, a conceptual link, uh, you're, you're trying to use shorthand when you use advertisements. When you write an advertisement, you want someone to see it and immediately make the connection um, that you're trying to draw upon. Whether that's seeing Antarctica or using Antarctica because of its links with heroism or because of its links with extremity, a really tough place, you know, saying our product works there, it will work anywhere else. Whether it's drawing on ideas of purity uh, or whether it's drawing on more recently uh, ideas of fragility and, and protection as well. Um, what I wanted to do was have a look at what are those frames? How have they been used at different points in time? Because that can tell us a lot about how our attitudes towards Antarctica have shifted and the ways that we interact with that place and the ways that we value that place have changed over time as well. So for me, the advertisements were a really good uh, avenue through which to discover those those different framings uh, and the different ways that we have looked at Antarctica. And I think the the important thing that often comes up in conversations now is that the way that we think about that place, often in dominant conversations, is of Antarctica as a place that is protected and has been protected for a long time and will be protected for a long time. Uh, but it's actually relatively recent that protection and it's not inevitable so that's another reason that having an understanding of these past visions and understandings of the place is useful as we look forwards as well sure okay and i suppose my question is how do you how do you go about researching the answer to such a question <laughs> Yeah, so uh, like many of my colleagues, I'm coming from a humanities background. We've actually got a, quite a big group now of humanities and social sciences researchers looking at Antarctica who are asking these sorts of human questions. Uh, so my background is in literary studies. And uh, in this case, there's some overlap with some historical methods too. Spending a lot of time in an archives, for instance, sourcing the old advertisements, because that's the, the first step, getting hold of those primary documents, which are essentially the data, which you then look at and analyse and see what sort of imagery is being used, what sort of language is being used, uh, what sort of concepts are being drawn out here. And then after doing that across uh, a huge range of, of advertisements, you're starting to see what are some of those similar themes, similar framings, and around sort of what periods of time are those 
coalescing uh, as well. But it's very much starting with those advertisements um, as a document to to analyse in the first uh, instance. The other thing is it's really useful to be thinking about the context in which those appeared. Um, So one example that might demonstrate how uh, glacial imagery, for instance, has been interpreted in different ways over time is an example of a two-page spread um, by Humble, which was an oil company, of the front of a glacier. And if you saw it today, you might think that it was an advertisement for, I don't know, something fresh, maybe water, maybe a deodorant or something along those lines, or perhaps with some environmental connotations, yeah, maybe I a mint. mint. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> when you read the tagline and it's talking about uh, how much energy is produced each day and how many tons of glacier that could melt. And it's a very different interpretation <laughs> when you see that now than when you saw that in the 1960s. So that was published in a time when that was techno-optimism and that's saying, look what we can do and that sort of human mastery over nature, whereas today that would not be the sort of a tagline that uh, companies would generally associate with themselves um, because we have perhaps different connotations with that icy environment. Much more likely to see something that says, here's what we do environmentally to try to protect the frozen parts of our planet. Whether or not that is actually the case, you've also got instances of greenwashing and ice washing where, where claims are made visually but not necessarily substantiated. But the reasons that that, that sort of imagery would be employed can change dramatically over time. Okay, interesting. So you're actually able to go back and look at like newspaper articles that, that have just been kept in in archives, and then like you know, just compare them and compile them all together. It's quite it's a big undertaking. I mean, over here a PhD is three years. I'm sure. Yeah, was there like absolutely loads? Like, and so you were studying in this in um, in Hobart or in, in Canterbury when you're when you're doing this. Yeah, I went to my PhD at the University of Tasmania, yeah, but also with some travel because there are different archives in different places and, and different national contexts. So I looked at Australia, New Zealand, UK and USA. I was about to ask if there was going to be more like in, you know, southern countries than there is in, you know, the northern hemisphere, referring to Antarctica. Um, so, yeah, lots of difference. And, and different approaches and at different times, yeah. So in New Zealand, for instance, um, so I'm, I'm from New Zealand. I was in Canterbury before coming uh, to Tasmania. And uh, there's papers passed, which some of them are digitised, but it was also going into places like the, the library with a microfiche, which is uh, really quite neat. It's the old newspapers shrunk down tiny on these little slides that you put into a special machine that blows them up large on a screen. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, a, it's a rather old technology, but kind of fantastic in that this is how a lot of these old newspapers are kept, for instance. Um, so that's one way of, of accessing those. Or different um, archives, for instance, in the US, we see a lot of interest in Antarctica in the 1930s with Admiral Richard Byrd and his various Antarctic expeditions down to Little America. And he was a real master of publicity 
in fact, that the ways that he was gaining sponsorship and it, it's quite fantastic seeing all these letters um, uh, and the sorts of things that he took down with him um, as well, including cows, in fact, um, which were very much tied up in that, that world of commerce too. Um, but in, in that case, it's um, in sometimes in specialist poll archives, sometimes it's um, a case of going through um, well-known magazines, for instance, the Time magazine and, and particularly around points, or they often uh, congregate around points where there's something particular happening in the Antarctic, so around the International Geophysical Year um, or uh, around sort of the environmental protocol, for instance, when that uh, environmental angle was becoming uh, more of the, the way of looking at Antarctica. It was in New Zealand too, around things like the, the Transantarctic Expedition in the 1950s, um, quite a lot around that because of um, Edmund Hillary's involvement in, in New Zealand, for instance. And then we see examples as well uh, in recent years with centenaries, and this is very much the case in, in the United Kingdom, for instance, when you've got heroic era figures like Scott and Shackleton, um, there were a number of companies that were marking the 100-year mark since their expeditions by re-releasing products, uh, often with special packaging saying that it was a, a centenary Antarctic um, product or sponsoring expeditions to mark that centenary and fostering a link for themselves uh, by doing that as well. So tapping into those ideas of heroism or extremity um, in, in that case. So it, it was different uh, at different times, depending on which country we, we look at and their particular Antarctic involvement. And, and I imagine also you'd see some differences um, if you're picking up other languages, which if anyone out there has an interest in, I think would be fantastic to see what was happening also, for instance, in um, Spanish language or French advertising, or if we see the same kind of patterns. Yeah, that would be interesting, yeah. Mm. Okay, so and you've, okay, you've, we've talked about it a little bit already. How, so uh, is it just because obviously our relationship and the primary industries, I suppose, in Antarctica have changed over time? How How is that, apart from, you know, like, well, you just said one of the things was it used to be now we're more into protection and conservation, whereas before it sounded like almost quite capitalist back in the day in the historic era. You know, like I imagine companies are are getting on board to sponsor these uh, um, expeditions, like you say, to show that their product works in Antarctica or something like that. So, so are they like what are the main ways it's changed over time? How how um, how it's represented in popular culture? So I think when we look at the the different ways that Antarctica is represented in, in popular culture, um, we can actually look not just at advertising, but right across the board. There's been work done also in terms of literature, in terms of thrillers, um, in terms of some of the other imagery or, or the sound. Um, and this, this applies across all of these areas. When we say there are these framings and these different ways of thinking about the place, I think it's less helpful to think of this as a linear progression and more to think of it as different layers and in fact it's layers of human stories that we're laying on top of that ice and on top of that place uh 
if we go back to the heroic era, um, which is sort of the 1890s through to around about 1922, we still see a lot of that imagery from that time in circulation. So these heroes with beards going out and battling a blizzard and that idea of uh, man against nature, um, very much set up as this dichotomy, we still see that that's actually still valuable in some cases with advertising in particular um, when you want to, at a glance, evoke these ideas of heroism. But then we see these these other ways to lay it on top. So extremity, still this idea of battling against and triumphing over a particular environment, um, but perhaps more of a, a focus on technology uh, and the like. And then around about the, well, through the 1950s with the International Geophysical Year, a bit more interest in the, the science um, side of things. But interestingly, science doesn't offer feature in advertising. Um, that, that's sort of the exception from what we've seen. Um, and, then, and, and then we have these other ways of conceptualizing a place which is sort of on the other end of the scale, but as a place that's untouched or as a place these days that's fragile and in need of human protection. And the way that we get there, it's not just about Antarctica it, in fact, in many ways, it's not really about Antarctica at all. It's about the, the value systems and what we think is important back home. So if we look at the heroic era and that going out and claiming of territory in a place that was sort of seen as very clean and, and the last place on earth you could go and plant a flag, uh, the way that that kind of behaviour is viewed now is quite problematic, as we've seen in, in all other parts of the world, um, this Colonialism has a whole lot of, of negative effects. It endured longer when we think about Antarctica uh, and that idea of the, the hero and that claiming of territory was palatable for longer. Um, but then we see shifts as well in terms of how human uh, interactions with the environment work too. Um, and we see it happening at different scales so when we think about um, the policy side of things through the 1980s in the Antarctic sphere, we had the uh, development of the CRAMRA, uh, so the Convention for the Regulation of Antarctic Mineral Resource Activity, was this idea that there were resources there that they might want to be used at some point. There should be a regulatory framework around that. And then that never actually came into effect. We had two of the parties, so France and Australia, uh, walking away from that. And eventually, in fact, in sort of two-year turnaround there, uh, the development of a new instrument, which we have now, the, the Protocol on Environmental Protection to the Antarctic Treaty, which sets up that lens through which we view Antarctica as a place to protect in, in terms of the environmental side of things. But the way that we get there, I mean, that was not inevitable that that would happen. And the way that we get there is also through sort of a, a changing uh, attitudes towards humans and environment in other parts of the world as well. Uh, and, a, and a questioning of well, what do we think is important? And there's also the question of who's involved in that conversation. So who is that we that's um, speaking as well? Um, which is something that, that comes up often in relation to Antarctica and, and Antarctic governance. Um, and that can differ depending on those different backgrounds and different periods of time as well. So I think it's really helpful to be thinking of Antarctica. I mean, we know it's 
ice and snow. We know we've got all those layers of snow and ice, which we're going down there now, trying to drill these million-year ice cores, find out what's happened in the past. Um, but we can also look at these stories in kind of a similar way as well. And say they're being laid one down on top of each other, and then um, sometimes we have some of those uh, older stories also coming to the fore again. They're not completely gone. And sometimes they get recycled and, and revisited in, in new ways as well. So that might be the hero theme revisited, but a company sponsoring an expedition that's made up of men and women of a, a range of mixed abilities, for instance. So perhaps calling upon that stereotype of the hero and somewhat. So that's, that's another way that that sometimes comes into play. Um, but those stories, they haven't gone away. Sure, yeah. Oh, this is also interesting. I could listen to it all day. What is so? What's the picture today, like in modern times? Like how? What is the the features of how Antarctica is portrayed in modern popular culture? Like I'm trying to rack my brains, and apart from like wildlife documentaries, I feel like I don't come across Antarctica in you know on, on TV or in in books. There's no no Netflix drama set there or, or anything like that. So. That I know of, maybe there is. <laughs> so, how? What's yeah? What's the picture today? Uh, yeah, well, when when Antarctica is called upon in um, popular culture, it's often in things like thrillers, and often for the setting because of that remote aspect. Um, I mean, and we do see Antarctica coming up in the opening of a number of films as well as that remote place where you have the first sentinels that something's wrong in the, the world, the, the cracks opening in the ice and, and the like. Um, it, it, sometimes around this sort of gothic idea too, there have been a couple of series recently uh, with uh, centering around uh, murders in Antarctica, that kind of that closed idea of a station in the wintertime. Um, a famous film that, that plays on that too is, of course, The Thing which used to be shown to some of the expeditioners as they settled in for the winter after the <laughs> ship or the plane had flown off, including yeah. when they still had sled dogs down there, which um, if you're familiar with that film, it's a, a dog that's the, the vector of uh, all the troubles in, in that film. So we do have a sort of a, a tradition there. Um, it, it's often associated with these kind of um, thriller ideas, which are very fast paced and, do some interesting things with the environment and the ice as almost a, a character in those as well. And uh, Elizabeth Lean here at the University of Tasmania has uh, done some um, interesting work on um, that one there. I think one of the ways that we come across Antarctica is often in relation to tourism. Uh, this is something that gets picked up very often in, in media as well. And it, it's coming back in many cases to that idea of, uh, well, conflict and um, in this case because of the growth of the industry um, in pre-COVID times in particular, new ships coming online. So uh, questions around capacity, uh, numbers, diversification of activities, so uh, kayaking and uh, submarines and, and helicopters and the like uh, and that t tends to get attention on the, the media side of things because it's this question of um, human presence in Antarctica and human impacts in uh, Antarctica is something that it's so easy to pick up on and, and write about. Um, we've also seen that 
in um, fiction, in a, in a number of works of fiction recently uh, as well. So things like um, My Last Continent by Midge Raymond, Where'd You Go Bernadette by Maria Semple. I've got a whole shelf of them behind me, actually, a whole shelf of uh, <laughs> Antarctic um, fiction. Uh, but again, it's sort of looking for um, what are these points of potential conflict and, and building on that. Um, so that's the case in things like The Lamentations of Zeno, relatively recent book by Ilya Trojanov, um, or one that's come out from uh, someone who went down on an arts fellowship and, and then took well over a decade and a half to actually write something afterwards um, is Lean Full Stand by John McGregor. And, and this is coming back to this idea of Antarctica and how do we speak about it and how do we write about it and how do you find the words for that place, um, which if we're coming to that literary side of, of representations is something that's come up often by arts fellows and writers who have gone down to Antarctica and uh, just this, this question of how you capture a continent of so many superlatives and extremes, which has such a relatively young human history uh, and is so far from the everyday for most people, uh, how, do you, how do you approach that? How do you uh, capture that? How do you make that accessible and make meaning from that? So it, it's something uh, that I, I think as a literary scholar is very interesting to, to take a look at, but it's not super, super common, but there are more and more uh, books coming out, being written. And one of the reasons for that too is that Antarctica is becoming more accessible, particularly through that tourism side of things. Sure, yeah, yeah. It is a challenge like to... That's the challenge we see in science, right? So especially if you've done Antarctic science and then you want to communicate it to the public and to some degree uh, the response is, well, who cares? Because <laughs> it's just so far away. Um, so then it's the same thing in literacy. But even though when you're writing for literacy, you, you can just be as eloquent as you like. <laughs> and then, um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's very much this this question of why why should we care about this place and mm. what does that place mean to you? Uh, and as I said, the way that we receive uh, a lot of the impressions of uh, Antarctica that is through these different forms of of cultural production, whether it's those nature documentaries or these novels. Sure. Yeah. Um, and it's really important to have an understanding of that. Even if, if you're a, a scientist and wanting to let people know why your research is um, important, um, finding those points of connection and that way of telling a story is really central there as well. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Um, can I ask about like your own experiences of going down to Antarctica and, and, and working down there and living down there and all that kind of stuff? Was your... Was your PhD much inspired by your own experiences down there, like the topic and anything like that? So I first went to Antarctica in 2011 with the postgraduate certificate in Antarctic Studies at the University of Canterbury. And I remember having seen so many images beforehand and particularly documentaries where the ice was accompanied 
by sweeping orchestral music. Usually sure. <laughs> by... We've all seen them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we landed. We flew down um, to, to the Ross Ice, ice Shelf, so we were going to Scott Base. We landed. We all got in the uh, big vehicle to drive over the ice, the big track, and they were playing Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club's band. This was the sound. <laughs> Blasted out because that was the choice of, of the truck driver. And I remember looking out the window thinking, I'm here. There's this complete disconnect between what I'm hearing and uh, what I'm seeing. And that's one of the really enduring memories for me of that first visit um, was because that was making me aware of, you know, exactly what had been consumed before and how was that shaping the expectation um, there's also often this expectation that Antarctica will be life-changing and I think it's an amazing place. Looking in hindsight, I guess it has changed my life because it changed the direction of my research, but it wasn't a case of I'm here, everything's different. Hmm. In the case of this is a really neat part of the world, you know what? There are some really awesome places in New Zealand too. There are probably some really amazing places just down the road from you if you look closely enough but that did get me thinking about that relationship between imagined places and when you encounter those places and that's something that's also really important when we're looking at Antarctica as a workplace so I've gone back since in a capacity as a lecturer on Antarctic cruise ships so spending five seasons doing that but I've also spent time academically looking at Antarctica through the National Antarctic Program side of things. And when it's a place that people go to work, um, it's also the place that you live. You're down there for long periods. You're isolated. There are a whole lot of factors going on there. But one of the things to consider there too is, is what are those expectations and how do they match up with what you can actually do? And my colleague uh, Cyril Yaksik and I, we did some work on this a few years ago. In fact, on the recruitment advertising, because what we were seeing was that the imagery used to promote these Antarctic jobs was very much calling upon that heroic era imagery, those figures in the blizzard, the battling against nature. And it was very dramatic, or there was very close encounters with wildlife, but a lot of it harking back to this hero idea. Uh, now he's a psychologist interested in person-environment fit. And had been doing these interviews with um, people, particularly wintering over. And there's a really big disconnect between the imagery and the promises that were being made and what everyday life was like. You know, if you're going to succeed down there, you need to be able to work well in teams. You need to be able to spend time inside for long periods, doing the same tasks day after day. And a lot of those attributes can be rather at odds with someone who's an adventurer and wants to be outside and being the hero. So that's that's one aspect um, to, to consider there as well. It's one aspect how that has carried on into that um, academic side of things. And I think National Antarctic Programs are thinking a bit more about that now um, and hopefully also thinking a bit more about the diversification of that image as well, who is shown in Antarctica and who is Antarctica for as a workplace um, and that, could be broadening out uh, more than it has been in the past. And then I've experienced that as well, um, working 
as a guide on those um, Antarctic ships as well. And that is very much coming back to that expectation too, that expectation management and that being aware of what promises have been made about this place through the imagery, in this case, in the advertising brochures, Instagram images online, and then how you accommodate that, but also on the ground deliver that in a way that's safe and that is practical and and that's within the constraints of operating in that remote environment. And I'll tell you what, those brochures all have the lovely blue skies, but that's absolutely (laughs) not what happens every day. Uh, We know Antarctica is a land of extremes. There can be fog, there can be very strong winds, there can be days when you can't see anything or or go anywhere, and and that's part of it too. Um, But this aspect of, of what's promised, what stories people carry in their minds, that's really useful to have at the forefront of your mind when you're working as a guide and interpreting this place for people too. It also gives you some points to pick up on. Some people may have been familiar with heroic era figures, so we can use that as, as a starting point and, and go from there and building on what we're seeing and making some of those uh, connections there as well. Maybe they've seen the film Happy Feet. Um, mm-hmm. had many conversations about those cartoon characters in the, the Zodiacs and then the, the, the krill in these kind of films. It's a good segue into to talking about the, the marine. So very much uh, <laughs> there, there's been a, a continuity there, but a lot of it comes back to what's that imagined Antarctica and what's happening in that encounter with that um, icy environment, whether it's for someone who works there or whether it's for someone who's visiting uh, as a tourist on their holiday. Sure. So we did you meet many people who worked there or came as tourism who felt, for want of a better word, like disappointed because their imagined reality was not meeting up to how it had been advertised? Or did you feel that yourself even? <laughs> well, Antarctica is really large, right? It's a whole entire continent. So what you will encounter in the Antarctic Peninsula area it's very different to what you'll encounter in the Ross Sea region. So I have uh, had these conversations before where people have been reading the diaries of Robert Falcon Scott and thinking about this ice plateau and silence. And we get to the peninsula and there are exposed rocks and it can be very loud from the wildlife or from the ice cracking or um, colours as well, you know, the, the sunset colours. And it can be quite different to to what was um, expected. And um, I, I think for me, my first trip down on a cruise ship as a guide, that was the, the most vibrant colours in a sunset I think I've ever seen, which was fantastic, but not, not necessarily anything like what we'd encounter on the other side. But I, I think that's something to remember. You wouldn't expect one side of the continent. I mean, down here in Tasmania, it's quite a, a different experience of Australia than if you went right up in, in northern Queensland where there are crocodiles and all sorts of things and, and sunshine. And down here we're in our puffer jackets. Mm-hmm. That, that's one way of, of thinking about that. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe disappointed is probably too strong a word. <laughs> maybe uh, surprised <laughs> by how different it is. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and the other thing that surprises people too, and this is something that I'm often talking to guests about, is the human presence 
in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the bases, the scientific bases, uh, many of which date back to the International Geophysical Year, but not all of them. They're surprised to see the human presence. And they're often confronted if we visit a station by, for instance, the, the rubbish, which is near the boat ramps or the airstrips, in a place where it's easy to be taken out because the Madrid Protocol is requiring uh, the taking out of the, the rubbish to try to reduce that human impact. That can be quite confronting, particularly if you're visiting at a time of season um, when a supply ship is about to come through. And that can start some really interesting conversations, though. I mean, what would it look like if you kept all of your rubbish for a year in one location? It's yeah. quite a confronting <laughs> thing to think about. Um, but there's that aspect. Or if we see remains of a vessel that was used for whaling, for instance, that's also part of the human history of that place. Uh, and I think it's important not to gloss over those stories too because that protection idea that we have now, it's, it's really recent. 1991, the signing of the Madrid Protocol, that's really not, not very long ago in the scheme of things. Sure, yeah. So is this the kind of thing you're lecturing about when you're on the, um, on the cruise ships? Yeah, so my uh, specialty on the ships would be humans in Antarctica. It's sometimes known as the historian, but it's the human connections with the place. Okay. And and now that I'm based here in, in Tasmania, we've also got some uh, research going too where we, we've interviewed some guides and asking about, you know, what is that work experience like? As in what is it like to work on the ship? What is it like to interpret that continent because the guides, um, I think they deserve more scholarly attention. They're the ones on the ground who deliver that experience and they have to be aware of all of the guidelines, um, the discussions that take place at Antarctic treaty meetings, very far removed from when you're doing a landing on a beach near the penguins, but uh, being aware of what are those rules and how people get that information and how they communicate that um, with the guests as well. That's something that we're uh, quite interested in, in yeah so it's, it's actually a massive job <laughs> being a, a guide <laughs> you have to know all the stuff and be able to do all the stuff <laughs> yeah it's a, can't be easy is that anything to do with the scar tourism action group or is that a separate thing um so the scar tourism action group just started at the end of 2021 and the idea there that's under the umbrella of the scientific committee on antarctic research um, the idea there was to bring together researchers who've been looking at antarctic research so tourism researchers uh, but also those who for instance use tour vessels as ships of opportunities to reach the antarctic to reach their sites Um, We've got some people involved in citizen science projects as well. The idea was to bring that sort of together under an umbrella, recognising that tourism is a key avenue for humans to visit Antarctica and also that you've got those potential environmental impacts and the effective management of tourism are, are questions for academics, for policymakers, for the media and for the tourism industry as well so the idea was to form a group that can have a coordinated approach and then bring these uh, different voices together and uh, that group there's information on the the SCAR website about that 
and very much we're welcoming for the input too from scholars working in that area or who have an interest in moving into that area and making uh, connections. So that the aim is really to build that research community and facilitate that research collaboration. So from that regard, we've got researchers with ongoing projects who are bringing their expertise and we've got uh, new up-and-coming projects also being discussed and uh, hopefully in the next season we'll have more opportunities to undertake some of the, the field work and uh, get back into the either the field or sort of those gateway, Antarctic gateway cities to, to talk to the, the people as we would have been doing pre-COVID as well. Nice. Yeah. Hopefully that all starts up again <laughs> soon and <laughs> in, a, in a post-COVID world, if such a thing exists. <laughs> um, okay. Lovely. What was the, what's the best and the worst thing about Antarctica as a, as a place to work? I think the best thing about Antarctica as a place to work and to research is the people and the sorts of people you get to interact with and, and hear from and that there's a really strong research community and that these are people who care strongly about the place. And an advantage of doing Antarctic um, work or, or research is that you've got this continent that's common at the heart of what you're doing, which makes it easier to have conversations with in the research side of things, people who are outside of your discipline or in the non-research side of things, just people in general. Antarctic is often a, a great hook into having um, conversations. I think um, one of the worst things of working with Antarctica or in Antarctica or on Antarctica is the, the way that it can be somewhat exclusionary uh, and this has historically been the case when we look at you know, who has access down there, whether we're looking at uh, that through a gender lens uh, and, and women often having later access or whether we're looking at what countries have a say in, in policy in the Antarctic Treaty System or whether we're looking at sort of representation today uh, right across the board in terms of um, all different kinds of backgrounds and, and abilities. And I think that's something that's probably reflective of wider society but can be amplified particularly within sciences and within um, research and, and that's an area that for the Antarctic community to work on um, further. So a, a lot of that, it's not really about the continent itself at all, it's really about the people. Sure, yeah, yeah. And okay, finally, as someone, as someone who's um, been there many times, what was, do you have a... a, a a best moment, a fondest memory, a favorite, a favorite time when you were down in the field. <laughs> yeah, I was very fortunate to have um, my parents come along on a trip with me. Oh, that is nice. One of the seasons when I was working in the Antarctic, and I think I have to point to that as a favorite and something that's said into my memory forever, because that was really special to have people who I love see a place that I love and to watch the the joy in their eyes as we're you know, going along through a whole group of humpback whales at 11 o'clock at night or the first time they see a penguin, um, that was incredibly special for me. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> That's to do with being in Antarctica. And I would say there are so many 
moments back home too when I sort of see a similar thing or just where that spark when I'm talking to someone or you know, reading a, a story to my small child and the excitement when he sees the penguins, um, that's also really fantastic. And it's a similar thing of these the conversations about that place and why it's such a neat place and what it represents for us in terms of on the governance side of things and cooperation and, and peace and uh, also in terms of the future of the, the planet and just seeing that spark and that interest in, in someone else or being able to bring that to the fore, that's also really special too. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I can't, yeah, that would be absolutely magical. I can't imagine anything nicer than going down there with my parents. That would be great. But was there any other topics that you'd like to cover? Any- I, I think that it could also make the point that you don't always know where you're going to end up. And if we're thinking about polar careers uh, and what is the, the end point or where you're headed, it's not always straightforward. It's not always clear. And I didn't know that I would end up. I mentioned it started with a, an appendix, appendicitis, and all along the way there have been opportunities for it to go in a different direction and, and I haven't always known what's around the corner because I think you don't. Uh, and that the really important aspect is to be thinking about what excites you, what is it that brings joy, or how do you also bring that spark of excitement to the world, whether that's within academia or whether that's uh, somewhere else. And to to keep your eye on that, I think, is, is super important, that there are many different avenues to, to finding something that's fulfilling and interesting and worthwhile, because uh, I think we often can get sold a story, particularly in academia, that there's one path. And, and that's not the, the case. Mm-hmm. And sometimes oh, uh, we could take a deep dive here because I'm finishing my PhD and I have no idea what I'm doing next. So <laughs> it's, the, it's the very much the feeling of <laughs> um, trying to sort out what's an opportunity and what's just a potential and what's neither. <laughs> so, but, uh, and not, not knowing where you're going, but that's, that's part of life. So, yeah. <laughs> And it's, it's also, it's in looking backwards that you see that story, that you draw those connections and that thread through and that that story uh, emerges. You don't necessarily see that at the moment that you're in it. Jack, I mentioned the Antarctic cows, but I didn't tell people what they were. They might wonder. What were the Antarctic? What were the Antarctic cows then? I do know. Did they have? I did. I feel like I've read somewhere that Scott had ponies on his expedition, and that they all died. Was this a similar? <laughs> well, there are there are a whole lot of, of stories around animals in Antarctica, really, and the reasons that people took them down kind of can be split into was a, a pet which would be something like on Shackleton's expedition, Mrs. Chippy the Cat. It was for food, um, which we've got some instances of um, sort of British Antarctic survey people writing home and saying, please don't deliver our food on four legs next time. Or it was sent down for publicity reasons. And this is where the cows come in. So Admiral Bird from the USA on his second Antarctic expedition, 1933, uh, when he was loading up his ship to go south, he actually took three dairy cows with him. They were Golden Guernseys, Klondike Gaynera, Deerfoot Guernsey Maid, and foremost Southern Girl. Uh, one of them was pregnant, 
and this was coming back to the publicity side too. Uh, he had a whole lot of sponsors, so the dairy feed and the barn and the milking equipment, but he also wanted to have a headline. So the idea there was first to have dairy cows in Antarctica, but first cow to be born south of the Antarctic Circle. And it didn't quite work out because, as I'm sure you know, there can be quite a lot of ice in the Southern Ocean and the ship got caught in the ice and the calf was born just north of the circle because that cow wasn't really going to wait. I oh, know. <laughs> but this had this made headlines back in New York um, and these cows as well were brought back. Well, three of them were brought back. Unfortunately, the, the mother died in the Antarctic, but they were brought back and toured all around the U.S., that helped raise, raise money for the bird expedition. So we had these dairy cattle playing this uh, rather bizarre role in terms of publicity, also in terms of uh, making a statement of presence, so US presence in the Antarctic with some of these echoes of sort of cattle on the Western frontier, um, but, but also to fund an expedition. And it's just a rather bizarre but I think really interesting example of, of how Admiral Byrd was super aware of how all these um, machinations of, of advertising intersect with uh, exploration and he just made that very explicit so that story of the Antarctic cows is right up there with uh, stories that I never thought I'd hear about Antarctica but uh, you can't really forget yeah oh that's so funny <laughs> I love that oh that's so good is that the weird? Was that the most bizarre thing that you discovered when you were going through all of these adverts? Um, was that? A, like... It was something that I discovered in the archives in Milwaukee of the American Geographical Society, and it's certainly the most unexpected. And it actually ended up leading to two papers, which were not part of my PhD, but were just sort of really interesting spin-offs. And and that was just from a newspaper clipping. And I thought I'd read it incorrectly. It was talking about the, the first milkman in the Antarctic. And, and from there, you know, you, you find something like that. It's a little gem in the archives and then you keep digging and, and you, you uncover all kinds of uh, weird and wonderful narratives that you can look at, again, through different lenses. Um, like we said, you could look at Antarctica through those different lenses. You could look at the story as we did, you know, through that publicity lens or, or through that um, angle of claiming territory because at that point as well pre-antarctic treaty admiral bird really wanted the usa to claim a sector of antarctica which they're semi-claimants they reserve the right to do so in future but didn't make a claim um, but admiral bird in, in, was very overt about that in his correspondence with the u.s government so some of the, the symbolism of taking down that kind of creature too um, it's just fantastic yeah it is <laughs> well the things they do to just uh, <laughs> to, to to get there <laughs> Yeah. Okay, that brings us to the final part of the episode. We call it the Polar Plug, and I just give you a couple minutes to uh, promote anything you'd like. So, but something we've not talked about, or a bit of research, or like literally anything. So, just go for it. <laughs> well, I think we have to come back to the stories here to to finish up as well, and stories from a few different uh, angles so if there are uh, researchers who are listening there we do have this research community that's really interested in those people and antarctica aspects the scar humanities and social sciences um, standing committee 
and in terms of finding uh, a group of people with a similar outlook and really exciting projects for me that's been super important so if there are people out there thinking Antarctica is you know this place just for science and scientists actually a lot broader than that and I think that in terms of the stories too that's a, a really useful thing for for all of us to be thinking about you know what is that version of Antarctica that we're carrying around where has that come from and what aspects of that are what you think are super interesting and important but then looking forward to what would you imagine for Antarctica how do you want it to be how do you want it to look why do you think it's important and I think sharing those stories is a, a really useful thing to be doing as well in whatever form that might take it might be conversations with friends it might be writing of fiction it might be through that academic side of things um, but it's sort of in many cases stories that are really bringing this place um, alive and that imagined version is um, really useful and important and valuable and I think central to the future of Antarctica itself. Lovely that's a fantastic concluding thought <laughs> we should just cut it then. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. Do you have any? Uh, what's what, what does it look? Like? Do you have any like future upcoming projects that you're anywhere that you know your research is going to take you, or um, anything in the works that you're excited about? <laughs> yeah, we've got a couple of um, projects starting this year. In fact, um, one of them looking at uh, artists and writers uh, who've been to Antarctica and experiences of the place in terms of those residencies and another couple of projects to do with tourism. So how do those ideas or those cultural backgrounds of tourists impact on how they're viewing and experiencing the place when they come down there? Uh, and also to do with citizen science too, and that's quite a big uh, thing on many of these tour vessels now, but how is that perceived by the guests who take part? Um, what's their experience of that, what they find valuable or, or interesting so um, a few things in the works hopefully on on vessels as as well uh, towards the next season mm -hmm. sounds great well good luck with that <laughs> i would look forward to seeing um results yeah fantastic sadly that brings us to the end of another episode of polar times thank you everyone for coming back and for listening to our podcast again we have loved having you um, please don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to all of our, uh, anywhere that you get podcasts from, wherever you're listening right now, it, you'll be able to leave a review or a five-star rating. Of course it would be five-star. Um, <laughs> and yes. And then if you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email us, uh, these are polar times at gmail.com. Once again, that email is these are polar times at gmail.com and it's all lowercase, or you can tweet apex at polar underscore research. Uh, please get in contact with us with uh, feedback or if you'd like to be a guest or recommend a guest or literally anything. So we'd love to hear from you. So all that's left for me to do is to thank my lovely guest for today, Hannah Nielsen. Hannah, thank you so much, Hannah, for coming on. Thanks, Jack. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, 
the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own and do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned. Mm-hmm.